you have one. If not, we'll get you one. But we talked about last night, sometimes Satan's greatest scheme and his most clever device is to confuse. He wants you to approach Christianity and think it's for the adults, right? It's for the brainiacs. It's for the theologians. It's for those who, who understand Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic and the ones who translate the Bible and get up early and make sure they read things before they ever even step foot out of bed. These are the people that this Bible is for. It's for the, the AP Christianity, the honor roll Christianity student. It's for like the, the, the level nine, right? And we perceive, we perceive ourselves, we're like, I'm like level one, level two. I don't really, I don't know that I can know this book. I don't know that it has implications on my life. I'm not quite sure what to do with it. And if we think that, Satan has us right where he wants us. He wants you to think of this book in a few different ways. Satan wants you to think of this book first and foremost as um, convoluted, as obscure, as like someone's messed with it. He loves the lie in our modern day culture that this book can't be trusted. Maybe you've heard this before. I want to give you guys a couple of quotes. Um, so I'm an apologist by trade, which doesn't mean that um, I say sorry a lot. I do say sorry a lot because I'm a dumpster fire. But uh, what it really means is that I study the proof of God's existence. I go and I, can, I do debates and I do conferences where I talk about the evidence for God existing, the reason we should trust the Bible and all these other things, okay? And as such... I get, this is one of the most popular questions I get confronted with, and that's how I know Satan is using it mightily in your generation. And people say, well, the Bible, how do we know that the Bible that we have today is the same Bible that was written back then? How do we know it hasn't been manipulated over the years? How do we know this wasn't just a bunch of people who made up a story so that we all act like better people? How do we know, how do we know, how do we know, how do we know, how do we know? And whenever someone asks that question, it's, it actually makes me happy because you want to know what I know? I know they have not studied it at all. Because if you do, what you'll find is that there is no other book from antiquity that stands like this book does. There is no other text written in all of human history that has endured and is as accurate as it was when it was first written. That is all to say that this Bible can be trusted. If you have your Bibles, we are going to open to the book of John chapter 1 as we jump into the text. John chapter 1. And last night we talked about what is the truth about God. And the truth about God, first and foremost, is that he exists and that he can be known. And that the truth is, even though we, we want to think it's complicated or that faith is, is too difficult or too complex, God makes it infinitely clear. And I hope to continue that theme. I made two commitments to you, to come from Scripture and to treat you like adults. And your commitments, which you've done so respectfully to me, is to lean into the conversation and then to respond through the text as well. So here's what we're going to do. John chapter 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, four guys' names. John chapter 1. Here's what it says. Beginning at verse 19. When I say 19, I really mean 29. Here's what it says. The next day... John, okay, so John is this dude, his name is John the Baptist, and John the Baptist was kind of a weird dude. He lived out in the desert, he ate locusts and wild honey, and he wore camel's hair, uh, it was like his fashion statement, okay? And he, in the Old Testament, okay, so the Old Testament, your book is divided into two halves. We divide it into two halves to make it simple, 
okay? But this is actually all one story of God, okay? Your Old Testament is the first 37 books of your Bible. It's a lot of books. It's a lot of pages. It's a lot of words. And the whole Old Testament has one job. Not two, not three, not four. It's got one job. Have you ever, have you ever had a friend where they had one job and they didn't accomplish it, right? You're like, bro, you, you, had, you ever said the phrase, you had one job. You have one job. The Bible, the Old Testament has one job. Are you ready for it? it and it's not what you might think. It is not to teach you how to be a good person. The Old Testament does not exist as a cool way of telling you old stories that are neat. It is not a series of tales so that you don't fall into the same problems that the people did. Could those all be helpful? For sure. Is that why it was written? No. It has one job. The whole Matthew, Mark, or sorry, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel, 1 Kings, 1 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Prophets, Ecclesiastes, Song of Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Abel, Abel, Jonah, Micah, Zephaniah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Zechariah, Malachi. The whole Old Testament has one job. You ready for it? It is to point to Jesus. That's it. The whole Old Testament does one thing. It, all it does is it says, God made the world, we messed it up, and the whole Old Testament is saying, but wait, but wait. God is going to intervene once again in mankind. God is going to show up in the flesh, and he is going to fix everything that was broken. And the whole Old Testament is just a, it's like a, it's like a cosmic drum roll. Brrr, here he comes, here he comes, and it's so that we'll recognize him when he shows up. So, for thousands of years, dating back to the Garden of Eden, in Genesis chapter 3, God makes a promise, and he says, I am going to send a solution, Genesis 3 verse 16, and that solution is going to be killed, but he is also going to put an end to the war between man and God. I will put enmity between your offspring and hers, between the man and, and sin. He will crush his head, and you will strike his heel. That's a prophecy that says, I'm going to fix what was broken. And then the whole Old Testament is giving us a hint to what this guy is going to be like, when this guy is going to come, how he's going to act, what he's going to say, what he's going to do, how he's going to save. And so for thousands of years, the Jews who are reading these texts, they're, they get in, they are, they're, they're enslaved by Egypt, they're enslaved by the Babylonians, they're enslaved by the Assyrians. They keep getting taken over and trampled and messed up and they turn away from God and they get, but they have one hope. That one day, God will make all things right by sending the Messiah. In the Hebrew, say with me, Mashiach. Mashiach. So they would tell each other stories. I want you to picture being a 13th century, 13th century BC Jewish kid in bed at night. And your mom or your dad would come into your room and they would start telling you stories. And almost all the stories would start with this phrase. Mashiach Tavu, which means when Messiah comes, when Messiah comes, here's what's going to happen. When Messiah comes, here's how things are going to be different. When Messiah comes, here's what hope is. When Messiah comes, here's what salvation is. When Messiah comes, here's how he's going to fix things. When Messiah comes, here's the hope that we can have. When Messiah comes, when Messiah comes, when Messiah comes. 
Because in the middle of your darkness, sometimes it feels like no one's coming. It feels like we have no hope. Got nothing we can do. But when Messiah comes, he's going to make all things right again. So the whole Old Testament is, can all be summarized in one phrase. When Messiah comes. So if you were, if you were a Jew, you would be thinking to yourself, every time you get enslaved, every time you get uh, reprimanded, every time you get punished, every time you undergo a different cataclysmic event in the Old Testament, you would just keep telling yourself, but when Messiah comes, he will fix it. So we've been looking for it, and we've been trying to figure it out. And what is the book of John? The book of John is the end of centuries and centuries and millennia of waiting for Messiah to come. There's a story in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 22 where God tells this man named Abraham to go up on a mountain. And he says, I want you to go up on a mountain, and I want you to worship me there, and I want you to sacrifice your son. What? You see, Abraham was super old, like real old. And his wife, Sarah, super old. And I don't know if you know anything about biology, but when women get super old, they become super barren, okay? So they can't have kids anymore, right? Womb doesn't work so much, all right? They're just infertile, right? There's this whole series of thing, events that happen, and then they can't have kids anymore. And that happens around 40-ish, 50-ish years old, whatever it is. Uh, and this woman's 99 years old. But God made a promise to Abraham, and he said, you are going to have a son. You're going to have a son. His name's going to be Isaac, and you're going to love this kid. And Abraham's like, awesome. And decades and decades and decades go by, and no son shows up. Finally, after waiting until he's 100 years old, Sarah, his wife, gets pregnant at 100 years of age. And she gives birth to a son. And this is like everything to Abraham and Sarah. They're like, finally we have a kid. Finally he's here. Finally, finally, we finally got him. This is amazing. And God goes, I want you to go on a mountain. I want you to kill him. And you're like, told you. You don't, you don't color that picture in Sunday school, right? There's no picture of a man with his son like. So they go up the mountain. They go up the mountain, this mountain called Moriah which later in the text is going to be the same mountain that Jerusalem is on. He says, I want you to take your son up that mountain and I want you to sacrifice him to me. So Abraham sits there with like wood in his hands and a knife and he's looking at his son and his son asks the question, I know that we're going to make a sacrifice, but where is the sheep? Where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham's like, you know, Imagine how confused you'd be if you were Abraham. You would go like, what in the heck? What's going on? Why, why are we doing this? Why are we, why, you made me wait for 100 years, and now i got to sacrifice the kid that you gave me? And every step up Mount Moriah, he's thinking to himself, what are we doing? What kind of a God is this? What kind of a promise is this? What kind of a fulfillment of the prophecy is this? You said you'd give me a son, but only to kill him? This is my son, Genesis says, whom I love. This is my son, whom I love, and now I must sacrifice him. This is Abraham's thought. This is my son whom I love, and now he must be sacrificed. This is my son whom I love, and now he must be sacrificed. Every step up the mountain. And as he gets to the top, Abraham raises his hand to follow through with what God said. And it says, an angel of the Lord, which most scholars believe is Jesus himself, stops Abraham. This is before Jesus became man, when he was still in, 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 in the, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. He stops him, and he says, Abraham, stop. You're not going to kill your son. In fact, what I've done instead, instead of you having to kill your son, if you look over there, there's actually a lamb caught in the thickets. And I want you to go take that lamb 
that's got its horns caught, and I want you to take it, I want you to sacrifice that instead of your son. What he's doing, what God's doing here is he's saying, I want you guys to understand, each and every one of us, because of our sin, deserves to be sacrificed like Isaac did. But there will come a time, Mashiach HaTavo, when Messiah comes, and he will take the place of you. Instead of you on the altar to be sacrificed, he, as the Lamb of God, will sit on the altar and be sacrificed in your place. For thousands of years, they've been looking for the Lamb to be slain in our place. Why is that significant? Here's how John chapter 1, verse 29 begins. It says this. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the, look, the Lamb of God who does what? He takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man comes after me because he was before me. I myself didn't know him. But the reason that I exist and have been baptizing with water is that he might be revealed. Then John gave this testimony. I saw a spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him. But the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who baptized with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Do you know what happens when John baptizes Jesus? What happens is that a voice from heaven makes a declaration. It says when Jesus is baptized, a voice from heaven cries out, this is my son whom I love. It is the exact same phrase that Abraham uses in the Old Testament when God calls him to sacrifice his son. He says, Abraham, I want you to take your son whom you love and sacrifice him. Then the New Testament, it says, this is my son whom I love. And what's the difference between Abraham and, and Jesus? The difference between Abraham and Jesus is Abraham did not have to go through with the sacrifice of his son, but the God of the universe did. When Jesus came to earth, when Mashiach HaTavo finally arrived, when Messiah finally came and we've been waiting for thousands of years for, for him to show up, the reason we knew it was him is because there's thousands of pages saying, when Messiah shows up, when Messiah shows up, when Messiah shows up, here's how we will know him. And John finally says, he pushes all of his chips in on Jesus and he says, that's the guy. He's the one. He's the one we've been waiting for. And he is the lamb that will take your place on the altar. He is the one who will be sacrificed in your stead, he will take away the sins of the world. So often, the, the, the Bible that you hold, so often the Bible that we talk about is presented to you as, uh, it, it's almost like the self-help book section of your local bookstore, right? We pick it up and we ask questions of it. And, and, and I'm here, I'm not here to criticize, I'm not here to criticize the way that you approach the Bible, I'm here to correct it because there's a way that the Bible asks us to approach it. Some of the questions that we ask when we approach the Bible are questions like this. Um, how many of you guys have ever, like you, can I borrow your Bible for a second? You take your Bible in the morning and you go, mm, I'm in the need for some comfort. Go. You done that before? And you're like, and then circumcision, you're like, oh, this is not it. Nope, this is, missed it. Shouldn't have opened a Leviticus. Okay, we do that. We approach the Bible, and, and sometimes even when we study scripture, 
we might sit in like a Bible study group and um, someone has their Bible, right? And I'm like the Bible study leader and we read a passage and then I go, okay, um, thank you for reading that passage. Uh, and then we go around and we go, okay, now everyone say what you think that means. Everyone, I want you to tell me what you think, uh, what, what, is this, what does this passage mean to you? Let me tell you something. That may be the most dangerous thing you could possibly ask. Because the Bible never presents itself as something that's open for all of us to interpret it however we want to. Never, ever does the Bible present itself as, I'm going to say some kind of obscure thing, and whatever's going on in your life, I want you to directly apply it and think that whatever you think about the Bible, whatever you think a passage means is what's true. A good theologian, which you all want to be, okay? Raise your hand if you're a theologian in here, okay? A theologian is someone who has an idea about God. Raise your hand if you're a theologian in here. Look, friend, you're all theologians. The question isn't, do you do theology? Theology means the study of God. The question is, is your theology garbage? Is it trash or is it accurate? You're all theologians. You all have an idea of God. You all think something about God, even if you don't think he exists. That's your theology. Your theology is an atheology, that there is no God. The question we want to get down to in this section as we wrap up today's talk is simple. What is the truth of Scripture and how can we know it? What is the truth of Scripture and how can we know it? Can we trust what the Bible says? Can we know that we're, we're talking about the same things that the original people wrote about and we want to approach the scripture by asking one thing. What did the original authors intend when they wrote these words? It's not what do you think it means. It's what did they mean when they wrote it. That's how we find the truth of the Christian scriptures. That's how we do theology. Not to figure out how it can apply to your situation or to tell us how we can date people better. That's not what the Bible's there for. It is there so that we can understand God's heart better. And through submitting to him, our character changes. God changes us from the inside out. Not just what we do, but what we want to do. It's a total heart change. But a lot of us, when we approach the scriptures, we do so like we would read uh, no other book in all of the world, right? How many of you guys have ever read like a chapter book before? Yeah, you read something like uh, right now I'm, I, we're, I'm, I'm reading my kids the Harry Potter series, right? So maybe you're like, oh, it's demonic. Okay, sorry. Uh, we talk about that all the time. It's fine. Uh, trust me. Um, I only let my kids do witchcraft on like Fridays and Saturdays. Every other day I'm like, not, right, not Sundays. It's a sacred day. But no, so we, I've talked to them about all those things. But I'm reading to them the Harry Potter series right now. And so I made a commitment that I'm going to read the Harry Potter series the same way that we read the Bible. So here's what I do. I pick it up and then I go, Professor McGonagall was upset. What do you guys think this means? First of all, Professor McGonagall's a female. Negative eight points for Ravenclaw. Secondly, right, we don't do, you would never do that. We would all look at the Bible and we, we would look at someone reading that and go, yo, 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 read the rest. Read the rest of it. You can't just read one sentence and ask me what I think about it. But this is exactly what we do when it comes to the scriptures. We open up some random page, we read a section of it, and we go, what do you think this means? You have no clue. Because it's not in its context. It's not, you, we're not listening to it the way it was meant to be read. You see, the New Testament especially, like when you read the book of Ephesians, Paul writes a letter to the church at Ephesus, and it's a complete letter. 
Could you imagine if you have like a, a long like Instagram DM or you write your friend like a long text message and they grab a sentence out of it and then they go, here's what I think this person is like based on this sentence. But we don't know. That, that sentence could have been a joke. And if you read the rest of it, you would have known it as a joke. It could have been sarcasm. It could have been hyperbole. It could have been that the sentence before could have said, the other day my friend Sheila told me, so it wasn't even you that said it. We don't know. We would never read a text message, just one section of it, and go, what is the character of this person like? We would read the whole thing. And when we approach the Bible, the reason that a lot of us don't understand God is because we don't get the context of what we're reading. We read one section, and we go, God seems like an angry dude. God seems, seems judgmental. God seems like this and that and the other thing, and we don't really know who he is. I'm going to end by giving you four things, okay? It's a little acrostic. It's uh, F-A-S-T, okay? This is when it comes to what the Bible is all about, okay? On why we should trust. What's the truth of the Bible? And I want you to give you guys these four things. You can, like, make your little acrostic, and I want you guys to have these and keep them with you. As Christians, here's what we believe concerning the Bible. Here's the truth of the Bible. First of all, the Bible is final. Okay, that's what F stands for, final. What does final mean? Final means there's other people, there's other belief systems, there's other religions who think that the Bible needs help, right? That there are new testaments in the story of Jesus, that there's additional books that we want to add in, that there's more. You, you might use the Bible, but then I'm also going to use this book about the four new noble truths of Buddhism. We can use the Bible, but we also want to orient our life around this. We want to use the Bible, but then when a modern scholar says that parts of the Bible aren't true, we're going to read them too. The Bible is the final word on everything in the Christian's life. And it is complete, and it doesn't need help. You don't need the Bible plus another book. The Bible in and of itself is the only word and the final word on how we can know and understand God. It's final. The Bible is final. Secondly, the Bible is authoritative. The Bible is authoritative. Authoritative means for the Christian, I'm not saying you have to, but for the person who actually follows Jesus, when you've got an issue in your life and you disagree with the Bible, the Bible wins. This is especially true in our culture today. There are so many things that are popular in culture that our culture tells us are right and wrong that the Bible disagrees with, and the Christian will look at the Bible as the final authoritative voice on that subject. We might not even like it. There might be things that the Bible says that we go, oh, I wish that wasn't there. I wish it said a little bit nicer. Oh, I, I, I really wish when it, when it talked about this topic that it, it didn't say it like this. I really wish it was gentler about this. I really wish it didn't even speak about this. I really wish it did speak about this. I really wish it made this more. It doesn't matter. And if you look at Scripture and you say, I'm going to view it as a consultant guide in my life. I'm going to read it, and if I agree with it, Praise Jesus. But if I disagree with it, I'm going to do my own thing. Then you don't actually follow God. That's, that's not a biblical understanding. That's, that is not what true followers of Jesus do. We understand that where I disagree with the God of the universe, he wins, and I don't. Where I think something is true and God says it's false, it's false. And if I think something's false and God says it's true, it's true. Always. It is the final authoritative word of God. Third, the word is sufficient. It's a fun word. Sufficient. The Bible is final. The Bible is authoritative. The Bible is sufficient. The beauty of the sufficiency of Scripture says that 
any person with a fourth grade reading level can pick up the Bible, you can understand the words that are in there, and it can lead you to salvation. You don't need pastors. You don't need your youth pastor. You don't need your small group leader. You don't need your counselor. You don't need me. Now, we can exist as youth pastors and counselors as tools to help us when something doesn't make complete sense to us. But what we need to understand salvation to be saved is found in a plain reading of the text of the Christian scriptures. It is all we need to be saved. It's not the Bible plus some really smart guy's interpretation of it. It's not the Bible plus a big apologetics course. It's not the Bible plus your pastor's final authority. It's nothing. The Bible is all you need. It is final. It's authoritative. It's sufficient. And lastly, and this is where I'm going to spend the rest of our time, which is only a couple minutes, is the Bible is trustworthy. The Bible is trustworthy. Again, as an apologist, if we had three hours, which we don't, I would tell you, I would walk up here and I would say, this is why we believe the Bible. We believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses who, who pronounce supernatural events and fulfillment of specific prophecies and who authors claim that their origins are divine rather than human in its, in its antiquity. I would walk through that whole thing with you, and I would tell you exactly why the Bible can be trusted, the archaeological digs that have been done to verify the Bible, the original languages, the, the fact that you have the Bible, and the whole idea of it's been passed on and mutilated through the generations, how that's completely false and unverifiable. I can show you that the documents that we have date back to the original documents. I can show you prophecy and the fulfillment of specific prophecy that would blow your mind. I can show you the Dead Sea Scrolls and how those were found and verified the very things in the Old Testament. I can show you... you you don't have the time in a day for me to walk through all the evidence that the, the Christian scriptures are true. But instead of doing all that, I'm going to point you to non-Christian scholars, and I'm going to give you three quotes that they give so that you can understand the Bible is trustworthy. What do we mean when we say trustworthy? What we mean is the name, dates, titles, people, events, stories, uh, phrases that Jesus said. The, the book that you're holding in your hand is the same unaltered set of scriptures that were around in the time of Jesus. That we, that's what we mean by trustworthy. When we read in the Bible that a man was swallowed by a fish named Jonah, that that's true. That when there was an exodus in Egypt, that's true. That when there was a, a flood that covered the earth, that's true. That when Jesus says, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, not by works so that no man can boast, it's true. That when, that when the book of Timothy says that all scripture is God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness that the man and woman of God is, is ready for every good work, that's true. That when the book of Revelation says God's coming back, that's true. That when the book of Romans says that we, are, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that's true. That Romans 5.8 says God demonstrates his love for us in this while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, that's true. The book of Philippians chapter 2 says that when Jesus was God, he became man and descended into time not considering equality with God something to be grasped, but instead made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, be found in human likeness, to become a slave to death, that it's true. The Bible is trustworthy. Let me give you these quotes as we wrap up. Again, you might be someone who you just go like, if God says it, I believe it, and that settles it, right? You're just like that faith person. You're like, I don't care about facts. I just believe. Great. Fantastic. Good for you. Here's the problem. Your neighbor who doesn't believe in God 
has no clue how to respond when you walk up and go, I believe, so should you. They're like, yeah, but is it reliable? You're like, who cares? I believe, so should you, right? It's like, listen, robot man. And secondly, a lot of us, we believe that the scriptures are true because we haven't really faced anything in our life that would ever question them. A lot of us in your life, here's what's going to happen. When life's cool and groovy and you're living your life and you've got good friends, and sure, there's some turmoil in your life, your parents fight, stuff like that. But some of us, we, we haven't experienced the deep tragedy that life is going to bring, and friend, it is going to bring it. You're going to have the death of a loved one. Someone's going to get cancer. There's going to be miscarriage. There's going to be brokenness. There's going to be betrayal. There's going to be lies. There's going to be loss of job. There's going to be mental health issues. There's going to be suicide. Your life is going to be plagued with brokenness. Do you want to know how I know that? Because Jesus promises it. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus says. And for a lot of us, when tragedy hits and when suffering hits, our really easy, I believe in God because I just believe in God, I don't need any facts, I don't need any verification of it, a lot of that goes out the window because we start to really challenge our faith. Here's what John Warwick Montgomery said. He is the father of all modern archaeology. He says this, if you're skeptical of the New Testament books, you have to get rid of every single book that's ever existed in antiquity because there's not a single document in the ancient period that's as well attested as the New Testament. So this is a non-Christian who says, bro, I've been studying ancient documents my whole life. I'm the father of modern archaeology. I have seen thousands of texts, and nothing compares to the validity and the accuracy and the trustworthiness of the Bible. And he says, if you want to throw out the Bible because you don't think it's true, that's fine, but you also need to throw out everything else that we ever have from history. That means we know nothing about Caesar. We know nothing about uh, the ancient wars. We know nothing about the Sumerians. We know nothing about the epics. We know nothing about Gilgamesh. We know nothing about uh, Aristotle, Plato, Socrates. We know nothing about anything. If you throw out the Bible because it's not accurate enough, you have to throw out everything else. Two more. We can say emphatically that there is no longer any solid basis for dating any book of the New Testament after AD 80. Two full generations before the more radical date of New Testament critics today. So here's what he said. The way that we know that books of the Bible are accurate is we look at how long was the distance between when the original one was written and the first copy of it was made. Because do we have any of the original documents still? No, they're written on papyrus. They don't preserve. So what we want to see is how many times and how closely were they copied to the original so we can know how accurate they were. So this guy says, bro, you're talking within one generation. It was all copied, and it was copied hundreds of times in different languages. We, we have more than 5,500 5, copies of the New Testament from this period that were made. There's not another document in all of antiquity that's even close, and it's within one generation. Last one. Sir Frederick Kenyon, he's the director of the British Museum, doesn't believe in God. He's an atheist, but he still wrote this. We believe that we have in all essentials an accurate text. The interval between the dates of the original composition and the earliest extant evidence becomes so small as to be negligible. That means it's not worth even talking about. And the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written, all doubt has now been removed. Both the authenticity and the integrity of the New Testament books 
are finally regarded as established definitely. Again, these aren't Christians writing this. These are people who are opposed to the Bible and what it says, but they still, in their science, go, that's one accurate stinking book. It's trustworthy. It is the final. It is authoritative. It is sufficient for salvation, and it is trustworthy. I know that this morning session isn't exactly the same as the other ones that are going to be. It's a little bit more factual, a little bit more heady, but I think it's important for us if everything that we're grounding the rest of our conversations in is in this book, and you walk in with a doubt that this book is even true, how could we have any other conversations? When the Bible says, you are not a good person, and you go, well, I don't know if the Bible is true, we have to start by establishing this is a good book. This is reliable and accurate. You, we're going to actually be presented with the real words of Jesus, and then you get to, as Don't respond to what you want to do with that, but make no mistake, these are his words. This is a divinely inspired book brought down through generations that has been passed on to you and preserved to you with every bit of inerrancy. That means it's perfect to understand who God is. That's what we wanted to establish today. The Bible is the final, it is authoritative, it is sufficient, and it is trustworthy for salvation. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for the gift of the scriptures. Thank you for not making the world and then leaving us in the dark to kind of fumble around and get confused at why are we here and who are you and, and, and why were we made in the first place and what is our purpose and who are you and how can we be saved? But instead, you wrote thousands of pages pointing to the coming of your son, Jesus Christ. You told the story in the fullness through four different people's perspective of who Jesus was and what he did, what he believed, how he died, and how he was resurrected. And then you gave us a whole New Testament that tells us now what to do with that and that we should expect Jesus to come back again. God, would you, would you give us the courage and the bravery to approach the text in a way that we may, maybe never have before? To ask the real questions of the text. What did the original authors mean? God, how can I know you more? That's the intent of Scripture. Not, not a self-help book so I can become a better person. It's how can I know you more and through knowing you submit my life and have you change my character to the Holy Spirit from the inside out. Do so you know me pray? Amen.